Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An Erio's original each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Tony Thorne. Tony is a British author, linguist, and lexicographer specializing in slang, jargon, and cultural history. In the late 90s, he was one of the first to pour through Elizabeth Batri's trial records written in medieval Hungarian. He wrote the book Countess Dracula, Life and Times of Elizabeth Bathory, the Blood Countess. Let's hear what he has to say about this late medieval female serial killer. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I, I hope it's a pleasure. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Um, but we have so much to cover, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, before we get started uh, with, you know, all of our Erzabet Batri questions, I have two initial questions. Uh, have we been pronouncing her name right? And how did you get access to her trial records? Okay. Um, the Hungarian pronunciation was Erzsébet Bátori. Um, uh, so that's how, that's how she would have pronounced it and the people around her. So, um, but, I mean, she's in, in England and around other parts of Europe. She's often called Elizabeth Bathory or Countess Bathory. So um, I, after the fall of communism in the, in the early and mid-90s, I was fascinated by the culture and history of Eastern Europe because we in Western Europe and in the U.S. and other, I don't think we really knew anything about their history um, it had been ignored, and it had been buried in in archives and and history and places where nobody had been. So I I, I was very excited, and I did a lot of exploring in um, in libraries, in castles, and things in Eastern Europe. And I was lucky enough to have some really good people from there: Hungarian, Slovakian, um, Czech. Uh, journalists and historians who gave me a lot of help. So I was able to uncover documents that even they, uh, in some cases, hadn't seen or which had been buried away for a long time. That is thrilling. So 
Can you set the stage for us? What was life like in the 1560s uh, in, in that part of Europe where Elizabeth was born? And, and can you give us a little background on her upbringing? Yeah, we, when, we, when we look at her as a person and we look at her case, because it is a case in a way, um, we've got to, it's very difficult for us, I think, to move our minds back to, to what it really was like in Hungary uh, and Slovakia, which is where she operated at that time. Because in some ways, it was a very civilized place. It had an aristocracy. It was uh, people, some people were highly educated, uh, was religious. Um, so in some ways, it was, you know, it was an early modern state that, that had some connections with our our life today. In other ways, life was very different. Um, women's status was was much lower, of course, than it than it than it is today. Even aristocratic women were more vulnerable to to men, and but also at the the. The life that surrounded uh, Elizabeth Bathory was a very risky, dangerous business because not just disease, but constant warfare. Hungary was on the like on the frontier of Europe, the eastern mm. frontier with the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and all the way through her lifetime and for hundreds of years, the Turks were trying to invade and conquer Europe coming from not far from where she was, where she was operating. So there was a, there were, it was a, a life of paranoia and fear and violence too. Because the Hungarians were defending Europe from the Turks, they were in a constant state of war. And so there were soldiers everywhere. There were people everywhere who were used to killing, were used to violence. So this was this was going on in the background. Meanwhile, the great families, who were incredibly wealthy and powerful, were feasting and drinking and eating as if there was no tomorrow. Wow! Um, because maybe they thought there was no tomorrow. You know, it was, there, there was a it was a it was a fearful time. I think. It was the uh, beginning of the YOLO lifestyle. You only live once. Uh, I think a lot of them would have would have identified with that. <laughs> um, so uh, her parents die during her childhood. At what age does this happen? And how does her life change at this point? Well, she was, as far as we know from the records, and there were records, because her family were one of the most glamorous and famous in Hungary, and Hungary was a major part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which ruled the whole of Central Europe and most of Eastern Europe. So they were an incredibly powerful, uh, famous clan, if you like, and she was brought up in great luxury and given the finest tutors, um, given the finest education and opportunity which was available at that time and lived in great luxury. And as far as we know, her parents, her father was a typical traditional aristocrat. Her mother was, was a highly civilized, highly educated lady. And as far as we know, she was given um, a, as far as we know, uh, a, a standard aristocrat but a good traditional um, upbringing. So there would have been a lot of religious elements, a lot of obeying rules, social rules and, and etiquette, things like that. But there's no real evidence. People have guessed that she must have had a traumatic childhood. There's no evidence of that. Hmm. So w what happens after her parents die? Uh, where does she go? Who does she end up living with? Well, she was betrothed, and most of the, the marriages, not just among aristocrats, but especially among aristocrats, even, even among local peasants at that time, um, most marriages were arranged. Families would, would choose who was suitable, um, just as they still are in some societies and other cultures non-European cultures, non-Western cultures today. So she was she was kind of very, she was a prize um, mm. who was probably, we know that a lot of young men were interested in her. Um, 
because of, of the power and wealth of her family, but also because she seems to have had a very strong character and been, been a very charismatic person, even when she was young, even when she was a teenager. So when she was, I think, about 12, she was betrothed to another glamorous uh, son of a, of a very important aristocratic family in Hungary. And this was Ferenc Nadasdi. And Nadasdi's family were even, even more illustrious than hers. And when I say illustrious, you know, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's, um, her uncle was the king of Poland. Her nephew was the prince of Transylvania. We're talking about the very elite of the elite. And Nadasdi's family, uh, Ferenc or Francis Nadasdi, she was betrothed to him. So they, they, were, they were put together in his mother's court and she was given more training in, in etiquette and politics and literature. And then they eventually married. So she married this, this hugely glamorous young man who then even improved his own, if you like, his own standing in society. He became the, the, the virtual leader of the Hungarian army that was fighting the Turks, that was defending the empire um, against the, the, this Muslim horde in the east. And he became a national hero uh, when he was in his 20s and 30s. Mm. He was famous for killing Turks and playing football with their heads and uh, for, uh, famous for torturing Turkish prisoners in very ingenious ways. And she lived with him in his palatial castle in eastern Hungary. And this was the kind of man he was, but he was adored and, and admired because in those days, that's what a, a, an aristocrat was supposed to be, extremely cruel, extremely inventive in, in, in sophisticated forms of torture and, and cruelty. So then at what point in her life does Erzabet meet her right-hand woman, Anna. Uh, who, and who were the others that were part of, of her future torture entourage? Yeah. Um, when, she, when her husband was still alive, um, they, were, they, had, they had many castles. And these castles were not just castles. They had courts with officials and servants and and agricultural areas. And she, she and her husband owned a whole string of castles across the, from the, the Austrian border over to, the, to Transylvania, which is now Romania and the East. So they used to move in procession. And the Queen Elizabeth of England used to do this, to move from castle to castle um, and move their court. But their main base was the the palace and castle of Sharvar in eastern Hungary. And that's where um, we're told that among, among the women, among the senior servants who were closest to her, who would be her entourage, who'd be around her all day and would share her private quarters, there was a woman called Anna Darvulia, Anna Darvulia, which is, she's a very mysterious person because her name, I tried, to, I tried to find out where the name came from, and it isn't Hungarian, it isn't Slovak, it sounds like some strange Latin, um, mm. Latin word. And this was her, one of her senior, senior confidants and servants. And later, legend says that Darvulia was a kind of sorceress who helped Elizabeth when she was younger to learn the arts and skills of torture. This is what went down in the, the legend which started to surround her. And Darvulia, nobody knows where she came from or anything else about her except that she was, in the later evidence that was given against Elizabeth, Darvulia was the cruelest and the one who taught her the techniques of cruelty. And Darvulia died of a seizure, of some kind of dramatic seizure, um, before, long before um, Erzabet uh, actually got into trouble. Uh, but she was always surrounded, like any great lady, there would be a whole hierarchy of, of servants and assistants and officials, male and female. But the, the ladies had their own female inner court, 
So they would they would have part of the castle or the palace, and they would have their own quarters where they would do their female things, and they were in charge. They had particular roles in this kind of feudal, late medieval type of society. So they were in charge of supervising the cooking, supervising the the healing and the medicine, supervising some of the some of the gardening even the, the you know the growing of crops to eat and things like that. These would be the responsibilities of the women. So Elizabeth would have a group of senior servants who would be with her constantly and and presumably who would come to know each other very well and they would be utterly obedient to her. But as they were probably older women, many many of these close confidants would have been older. They would also have been, you know, people who instructed her, not not in traditional education, but in in, in cooking or dressmaking or things like this. And then the, and she always was surrounded by this small inner group of senior um, um, senior women. So as far as we know, when do the, the when does the torture and when do the murders begin? Well, <laughs> uh, that, that, you see, you seem to be assuming that there were tortures and murders. <laughs> now, that, that is, that's the key to the whole thing. I, I need to tell you right now, um, it, you probably already know this, but a lot of people don't know this. A lot of people who've heard her name and who go online. I, I went online today and just Googled. The first thing I saw was on Wikipedia, Erzsébet Bathory, caption, Hungarian serial killer. So if you just go online and do a quick Google search, that's what you find. <laughs> but but it, it is actually, it's a very, for me, this is why it's such a fascinating case. She could have been, she may have been one of the cruelest um, monster, female monsters in, in history. She could have been. She could have been entirely innocent. Um, I really looked, and, and people don't like this. People, I, I still get people <laughs> who are aware that I've, I've been involved in her case saying, now, come on, come on, you know, yes or no, you know, guilty or not guilty. <laughs> Stop all this complicating of things, you know, tell us the truth. And they sometimes think I'm hiding something. But let me just tell you, I've looked at, at all the evidence that I think is available. We hope, we hope one day we may find something new. We may find a letter or something that, that's never been seen before that has some un, uh, undiscovered truth. But I've looked at everything. And my friends and colleagues in Hungary and Slovakia are still looking for more documents, more evidence. We've examined everything. We've had lawyers examine it. We've had other historians. There's a huge amount of evidence about uh, Erzsébet Bartoli and about her life and about what happened. And when she was finally arrested, she was never put on trial because she was too powerful and too noble, too aristocratic. But her, her senior servants were put on trial in her place. And then a massive amount of evidence was brought um, accusations of, of torture, of cruelty, going back years to, to when she was still in Sharma, when her husband was alive, uh, years before. But there is still, after all of this, and after examining all of it really carefully, no absolute proof, no proof that could be used in a modern court that would demonstrate clearly whether she was innocent or guilty. What we do know, what is absolutely beyond doubt, and, and again, I've seen all the documentation, was she was framed. She was set up. Mm. The, the trial, the evidence, the gathering of the evidence was all, in a sense, uh, in order to construct um, a, a scenario which would ruin her and condemn her, and most importantly, get her out of circulation because she was a problem for so many people. And also, it's interesting, everybody who was involved in this conspiracy to get her arrested and get her and, and wanted to put her on trial, but they didn't dare actually try her. They didn't dare let her ever speak. She was never given the chance. Once she, she was arrested in 1610, in New Year, and 
imprisoned in her own castle. And she stayed there until she died in 1614. But um, she was never, ever given the opportunity to testify, to speak on her own account. And no, nobody, no allies, we don't know if she still had any allies, nobody was ever allowed to speak up for her. So all we have are hundreds and hundreds of accusations, hundreds and hundreds of testimonies from witnesses and of course, this looks horrific. They were talking mm-hmm. about yeah. they were talking about mass murder, torture, and ingenious ways of inflicting pain. And the, the the story they built up is a horrendous story, if it's true. But we know that the people who organized this uh, this what can I call it? I mean, wasn't a trial because she was never properly tried. But it was a show trial. It was like the kind of trials they used to stage in communist states and, and fascist states in the 19, in the 20th century. It was designed to demonstrate somebody's guilt. It wasn't designed to examine their guilt at all. There was no defense. There, was, there were no two sides. There were only masses and masses of horrific, colorful accusations made against her. And what what we do absolutely know is the people who organized this and the people who testified all had something to gain from ruining Erzabet Bathory. Um, The other aristocrats wanted her land. The king in Vienna wanted the Bathory family's power, their huge power, to be got rid of especially because her niece, her, her, her nephew, sorry, um, Prince Gabor of Transylvania was always a threat. They thought he would might invade Hungary um, and, and put the batteries on the throne instead of the Austrian emperor. This is how powerful and potentially dangerous she was. Um, but on a, on a much more kind of, I guess, squalid, sordid level, it was also all about money and land and inheritance. Mm. Her neighbors, some of the other aristocrats, her children, her, her daughter's husbands and her, her rich neighbors who organized the trial all wanted to get their hands on her huge wealth. And these things are all true. Now, I've said that. It sounds like I'm defending her. It's still possible <laughs> This is what's this is what's really kind of this is what tortures people. Who, <laughs> this is what'll keep you up at night. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it keeps us still keeps me awake years after <laughs> I wrote this book. Um, but the, still there is the possibility that she was guilty. Uh, because in those days there was no difference between fake evidence and real evidence. There was no there was no innocence until proven guilty. Courts, trials were all about simply blackening somebody's name until you reach a point where you can execute them or imprison. There's there's no right or wrong involved. So what is interesting, I think, is, and this is something else I discovered, which I didn't know when I started on this this exploration. There are other cases uh, in in Hungary and Slovakia, but also in other parts of Europe, even in, in Ireland, for example, famous cases, which have now forgotten. There were a lot of cases in which rich widows, and this went on right through to the 19th century. Maybe it still goes on today. I don't know. If a, a woman had status in those days, in the 16th and 17th century, only by virtue of her husband and, and the male members of her family, once that... Her husband, Ferenc, we don't know what he died of, some kind of disease. He wasn't killed in battle. He was only about 40 years old, I think. But he died in 1604. Uh After that, she was exposed because even a fantastically wealthy, fantastically intelligent, charismatic woman, we know from her letters that she was a very strong character. She said to an aristocrat who tried to trespass wanted to steal some of her land. She said, Don't, do not provoke me. You will find a man in me, meaning I'll deal with you. And she threatened to behead um, servants, male servants, who were too, who were not respectful enough. To, she just said, I'll have you beheaded if you speak to me like that. <laughs> so she was a very, very strong character. But 
What is interesting is we know that her sons-in-law, who were senior aristocrats who married her two daughters, they wanted to get their hands on the inheritance and they didn't want to wait once her husband had died. She also had a son who was still very young when her husband died, um, Paul or Paul. He stayed at Sharvar. Erzsébet went to this, this rocky outcrop in Slovakia, Chaktice or Chetice, where she preferred to live a long way away from the rest of the family in her kind of private world uh-huh. with her castle, uh, this, this very kind of dramatic castle on top of a cliff top, a rocky top, uh, below which she had a manor house, a luxurious big manor house and villages around which she owned. She went there. She retired there after her husband died, but she continued to rule over her property, her estate. And we know that her, her sons-in-law and her son was too young. We, we, he was still, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 or 14 at the time before she was arrested. Um, as far as we know, he loved her and she was good to him. There was no, we don't know because we, we don't have any communications between, but her son was looked after by her husband's senior servants, uh-huh. who were themselves aristocrats. And they were worried that the son's inheritance, the only son, would be given away, either given to the Transylvanian prince or to some other friends or family members of the Batory clan, who was still incredibly powerful and influential in other parts of Europe, in Poland, for example. So they saw their duty as protecting the son and protecting his inheritance. And the five men who gave the the worst evidence, the most horrific accusations, the only five people among dozens and dozens who gave evidence against her, the ones who said that she'd been responsible for hundreds of deaths, most people said, oh, we'd heard about one death or we think somebody died. Uh These men, these minor aristocrats who at at the trial said she killed hundreds of people, they were all the senior servants of her husband, the protectors of her son. Interesting. So, so were there bodies? Then were there no, were there no. servant girls that went missing? We we have the names. We have quite a few names of girls who died in her court. Uh, we don't have any proof that they died, but it you know uh, people who came forward and gave evidence who were just peasants, and of course <laughs> they didn't come. They didn't come on their own accord. They were sent and they were paid to give evidence. But they th- there are certain names that come up in the trial of young girls, virgins, young ladies who died, and it seems very likely that they did die how they died, where they died, and what happened to their bodies, there's absolutely no evidence. There isn't even one, one grave or tomb actually identified in the records. They weren't interested in those details. They were only interested in painting a picture of a monster, of a, of a monster serial killer. But it seems very likely that a lot of girls died in her court Mm. In all her courts. Now, again, this seems really disturbing. Well, this woman, you know, what kind of woman would preside uh-huh. over these fabulous castles and palaces and then have young, young girls were sent? This was a standard thing in those days. The, the big aristocratic courts, especially the women's part of the court, acted as a kind of combination of a school People would send people who lived around there, poorer people, would send their daughters, especially, uh-huh. to the courts to learn how to cook, how to dr- the dressmaking, and how to behave to win a husband. And they would send them to court because they would hope that by doing this, that it would improve their prospects and that they could make a good marriage. And they would hope that Elizabeth or the other aristocratic woman might actually help to arrange a marriage. So lots and lots and lots of young girls were sent by their families into the courts and they would live there. They would stay there 
in kind of dormitories in uh, around the court, yes. and they would be ruled over by the senior female servants. And they probably didn't see many men at all. They were kept apart in this sort of women's court. And so the court was partly a school, a uh, kind of finishing school right. um, for, for young ladies. It was also a hospital because the, the courts were the only places where there were some nurses and maybe not real doctors, but people who had medical skills. So again, if people were sick, they were sent to the court. And the, the medical procedures at that time, and again, I, I had to, this isn't my area, but I had to research it and, and consult experts. The medical procedures that they used in those days, not just in Hungary, but in, in Britain, France, Italy, were indistinguishable from torture. They used, to, they used to duck people in freezing cold water. They used to whip them with stinging nettles. They used to burn their skin to give them shocks. They used to bleed them. Um, and they used, to light, they used to light bits of paper and stick them under their fingernails to try and shock them into health. So in the courts, they were practicing these bizarre rituals on young, virginal, innocent, helpless girls. So this is all true. The question is, did it go over into, as, as was accused right. in the trial, into sadism? And I think it's quite possible because this happened. It, so you, you think it, it is possible? <laughs> it is certainly possible. Because think, no, this is horrible. It's, a, it's, a, it's very disturbing. But I also looked not just at the 16th, 17th century in Hungary, but I looked at things like schools and hospitals where young ladies and young girls or orphans, where, where they ended up. Um, right through the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And the conditions for young people in schools, for example, or orphanages were horrible, right through to the, to the Victorian era. Um, and we have evidence, again, I, I have documents from some of the male aristocrats writing to their friends and saying, if you have a child, you must beat them. Whether they've done anything wrong or not, it's it's good for their character. Beat them every day. Wow! You know, and th this was the kind of this was unfortunately this is something people don't want to face up to. Hungarian aristocrats today are very embarrassed by Erzsébet Bathory. They don't want to talk about her. Most of them, in case it's true about her, because you know she, this. But this kind of cruelty was common. Uh, unfortunately, even in the home, even in ordinary people's homes, what we would consider abuse today or sadism was, was, I'm afraid, very, very common practice at all levels of society. So, again, wow, this was going on probably in her court, but did it? When did it cross over into something more sinister? Now, we also know that she had at least one witch in her court. She had a wise woman called Erzsébet Majoroshne, who was the wife of one of her, um, one of her senior gardeners, who was a, a magic woman who would work magic and who would write spells and would, would cast spells for Elizabeth. But again, this was standard. This happened in all the courts. They believed in magic. They believed right. in magical cures and magical healing. This was so all of these things which look so bizarre and exotic and scary to us were actually normal parts of, of the life in, in this kind of court. But what I think is a what let's let's look at the evidence against her, if there is any. Mm -hmm. um, what is interesting is that they could have, if they wanted to ruin Erzsébet, they could have accused her of, they had several options. They could easily have accused her of treachery or political conspiracy because her family were politically powerful, because she had members of her family in Poland and in Transylvania who were enemies of the Hungarian king and the Austrian emperor. They could easily have accused her of, of treason and of plotting, political plotting. They didn't. Now, there may be reasons for that. 
she was very powerful and glamorous and her family were very popular. Her, her late husband was adored as a hero. So it might have been difficult to do that. They didn't do that. They could have accused her of black magic mm. because that was one way right through until the 19th century in Eastern and Central Europe. If you wanted to get rid of a widow and grab her land, claim she's a witch, organize a witch trial. And there were aristocratic ladies. In fact, Elizabeth's uh, niece, Anna Batory, after Elizabeth's death, was accused, she married the prince, uh, another prince of Transylvania. He wanted to get rid of her because she was too tough, like Elizabeth. He wanted to marry somebody else. He had her put on trial for witchcraft. Classic. And black, black magic. So they could have used that. Why did they... Why did they choose cruelty? It's quite an unusual thing to accuse someone of. But again, there still could be an answer. If you accuse someone of sadism, which is effectively what they did, and murder, it's a personal crime. It doesn't actually drag in anybody else. You don't have to accuse someone else of being part of the plot. Of being part. So they didn't have to drag in any of her rich, powerful family or neighbors. They could simply say, she is the monster. Wow. She, she and her servants did this. And it doesn't involve anybody else. So, But it, at the end of the day, and this is what, as I say, drives, still drives me crazy, drives everything. She could have been guilty because yeah. the evidence would have been the same. If she was guilty, that's what they would say about her. If she was innocent, they would still say it about her because they wanted to mount a conspiracy against her. So we just don't know. We, it would be so good to find a letter from somebody who knew her or a letter from her. Um, yes, we're sending out a signal. Yes, sending out a signal here in this podcast. If you have a letter from Erzbet, uh yes. that might say what she did for the love of God, please send it to Tony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or, or a letter from her, even saying I'm anyone, innocent. anyone, yeah. anything. No, we don't have that either. <laughs> we'll so, take yeah. it. We'll take it, <laughs> Tony. But we I, I, we are I, running I, I, out I, of time here, yeah. but I just I'm want. Sorry. To, I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, it's been fascinating. I, I I have to ask one final question, and I have a feeling how you're going to respond, but I have to ask. It anyway, yeah. if I, if you had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept that is to blame for the tur- torture and murder that was supposedly done by Elizabeth Bathory. Who or what would that be? I think I think there's a lot of people. This is this is disturbing as well. I think there's a lot of people throughout history, and we we. We don't want to bring in other things, but look at the Holocaust, look at things like that. There is a sadism in people, ordinary people that can be triggered, that can be unlocked. And I think there were a lot of nurses, servants, uh, a lot of school, school directors going right back through history who allowed their sadism and abuse a free reign because it was possible in those days. It's not so easy now. So I think there are a horrible number of guilty people through history. And in her court, it's quite likely that her servants, possibly her too, were hard and cruel and unrelenting and without compassion. Mm. And so I think, unfortunately, and her husband was a hard, cruel man in a hard, cruel age. So there's a lot of guilty people involved in this. Not just Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for talking to us today. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and good luck in your explorations. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you get that letter, Tony. I really do. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. So, how about that? That took a turn. It's a big huh? di- it's a it's an intense day for me, the fact checker, because <laughs> as Tony explained, <laughs> we don't know what the facts are here. He totally blew our minds, guys. Did he not? I mean, we had talked about this possibility. True. We did. Uh, We knew that it was possible that not only was the evidence not really uh, reliable, but we knew and we also knew that there's so little evidence and that these trials were a mockery. Right. And shout shout out to our uh, listener suggestion, which made mention of that, Mm -hmm. which was that um, as Tony explained, what we he's he said what they know is that it was a setup. the The trial was a total setup, and it was a it was a mock trial, as he as he said. So it wasn't even a real trial. You know, th- this really got me thinking. We learned about these witch trials in uh, when we discussed the Salem witch uh, trials, and the 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 idea that this was just common practice that it's just like okay i want to get rid of a woman she's got land that i want let me just call her a witch and we'll do this witch trial and then i'll just like get all her land and stuff like um hello <laughs> are we seeing a pattern here <laughs> it is it's frightening isn't it yeah and I mean, we kind of, we put vampire mania up on the board, but maybe we should have put, you know, witch, witch mania up on the board as well. <laughs> yeah. But, now, I see that you guys were writing notes while, uh, during the interview. Uh, what were some thoughts you all had? Well, really, um, the idea of like this orphanage um, that they had at the court or this manor school, this etiquette school that they had at the court where they were also doing like medical experiments on these young girls. That really is horrifying. And just the idea that medicine at the time was essentially the same as torture. 
um, it really does blur the lines of of she probably was torturing girls. Right. Wow. But so was everyone. <laughs> I, and well, that was medicine and that was healing. He, he made the distinction of sadism, right? Which I think is like your the why behind the torture, right? right. So there's the torture yeah. is torture for science, quote science, or what you thought was science. Was it to gather information or was it, and he said sadism was the key. Did it ever cross over into sadism? Um, and it's hard, certainly hard to prove. But he did say it was probably likely that it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can just see that unraveling. I see Elizabeth, who we put stress up on the board when we did our main episode. She has so much power, so much stress. She's holding it all together. And I could see her taking that out on these young women in her court. Absolutely. I, something I wrote down that I think we might have missed was lack of compassion that I think was so prevalent in the times, you know, and, and you did bring this up, Chris, um, where, where you were talking about like, not uh, the moment that we label any kind of life as property there, this is the, there's a, a lack of compassion, uh, this is a problem. Right. <laughs> or when you go the other way, when 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 people are royalty or above the law, as yeah. we discussed, or above common the common person, uh, it, just, it has the same sort of inverted effect. Also, just, you know, as listening to um, Tony speak, realizing just the cruelty and the viciousness of the Middle Ages and how those qualities were almost celebrated and mm-hmm. essential to keep power uh, is so scary. It is. And, and it, it, it's true. And the fact that, you know, just the constant war, constant death, just being surrounded by it all the time and the way that the aristocracy lived where it was like we were talking about the YOLO lifestyle or I made a slight adjustment, which instead of Y-O-L-O, it would Y-M. DT, you might die tomorrow lifestyle. Not you yeah. only live once, but you might die tomorrow. Let's coin it. Let's coin it. Uh, what is it? It doesn't roll off the tongue like yeah. yellow. Yumed it. Yumed it. I could see it. <laughs> I, I want to use it. Yumed it. You might die tomorrow. <laughs> now, Eat up. Just to remind us, we sent Elizabeth to jail and then we did slap dehumanization of lower classes, which is in the ballpark of what we're kind of talking about today. But Rebecca, what do you think? I mean, because there's no clear evidence, are you thinking you might want to let Elizabeth out of the alarmist jail? Well, you know, this is my worst. One of my biggest fears is being uh, sentenced for a crime that I did not commit. Mm. That is actually Uh uh, true. Uh, And I couldn't sleep at night knowing that the evidence is just not there for her to be put in the alarmist jail. So I sat, you know, whether she did it or not, if she did, this is terrible. If she didn't, and she's been falsely accused for uh, centuries, another shame. Um, But I just don't think we have the evidence here in our alarmist court to, to, to really just maintain that verdict. Well, and also furthermore, what Tony left us with, which I don't know if you guys got chills when he had to pick who he thought was to blame. And he basically said the innate human cruelty that like exists in all of us, like (laughs) the Satan, the sadism that sort of lies beneath the surface in the soul of man. That gave me chills. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but that just might be where we're at because, uh, you know, going beyond just sort of class distinction, we, 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 you know, slapping dehumanization of lower classes, upper class, lower class, it doesn't matter. Humans are humans. And for some reason, cruelty exists in us. And that's just part of our makeup. If you look throughout history, like we, it's just part of who we are some, for some fucked up reason. So are we going to send our oh, the the cruelty that lives within us <laughs> to the alarmist jail? <laughs> I think uh, yeah, I, I mean think I, they got it. I like that. I like I like that. Okay. So uh I I'm going to call it 
uh, Erzabet, see you later. You're out. The cruelty that lives within us. You're going to the alarmist jail. And then what about the slap? I kind of want to slap the Middle Ages just for being who they are, (laughs) who Mm. they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Middle Ages, you're getting the big slap. (laughs) Two big ones. Two big ones. Have we ever had one? I just want to announce the grand opening of the Alarmist uh, School of Etiquette for young girls. So enrollment, <laughs> enrollment is open. So we'll you teach know, you how. We'll, send us your preteens. We'll teach you how to nab a man, how to keep a man, and what a woman's place is in its society. Oh, geez. Okay, well, I'm going to stop both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop. It, it was a terrible thing that happened. You could just send them, and they. We don't know how long this will take. So just buy a one-way ticket you can send them here okay don't worry we'll have a <laughs> nice a, place for them to sleep and... that's enough that's enough <laughs> uh, thank you guys for joining me <laughs> today <laughs> and thank you to the alarmy for all, all of their insight the alarmy pulled through uh on this one so uh props and stay tuned because next week we have a highly uh recommended episode coming up We're going to figure out who's to blame for Woodstock 99. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 